This message by Terry Virgo was recorded at the New Frontiers Together in a Mission Conference 2009 in Brighton. I'm just going to read uh, a short section from Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Father, We thank you so much for your great, mighty plans. We thank you what was in your heart when you spoke to Abraham. We thank you, Lord, you've always had the nations, the ends of the earth, all the families of the earth. We thank you, Lord, that as you've had them in your heart, you've also had plans for each of us. And Father, we ask you right now, please, for the help, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that what we do here is to your glory. We thank you so much that the Lord Jesus stood up and shouted, if anyone is thirsty, come and drink. And Lord, we just want to come tonight to you and drink of you, feast on you, celebrate you, just glory in your phenomenal grace and kindness. Holy Spirit, would you engage in our thoughts, would you make us feel at home in your presence? Would you give us intimacy with you, even in the crowd? Would you stimulate faith? Would you make us so hungry, there's no way we're not gonna draw on you? So bless us in your love, fulfill your purpose amongst us. We do ask it, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So my approach this year is going to be a little different to previous years in that I want to be responsive to some of the things that were said here last year and particularly by Mark Driscoll in connection with our considering our future. I really do thank God for his contribution, particularly in that theme. Much that he said was hugely helpful, but that was especially, I think, helpful. And uh, last year, as I was pondering the conference this year, I actually wondered in view of his talking about future and founder, uh, whether perhaps I would just host the event and let some of these incredible young guys that are surging through our ranks 
carry the conference. And I felt while I was away in Australia that God actually spoke to me quite clearly and said, I want you to speak three times and I want you to speak about New Frontiers. It's past, it's present, and it's future. And so that's the approach I'm bringing. I'm not actually going to expound a passage of Scripture, though I want to look briefly at the passage I've just read to you. But I want us to look at who we are, what God's done with us, and help us to look forward as a result of that. Churchill said, the further back you look, the clearer you can look forward. And it's helpful for us just to remember how God has led us and what God has made valuable to us. It's not my intention to tell a story of New Frontiers like I once did at Stonely Bible Week, which some of you may remember. I don't intend taking that course, but I just want to highlight what I believe are foundational values tonight, and then tomorrow night we'll press on with some more and then project into the future on Thursday. First of all, I want to remind us that we are fundamentally a word and spirit movement. I believe that. I want to treasure that. I want us to regard that as hugely important. We won't want to drift either way, but we do want to highly value both. We want to treasure the Word of God. It's our compass. It's our map. It's our guide. It's our food. And also to have the presence of the Spirit who ignites and excites and motivates and shows us God is literally amongst us. We want to treasure both themes, so we're happy to be called Word and Spirit. Sometimes we're called Reformed and Charismatic. I'm happy having those two things together. And in this first passage that I read to you, I want to see where we started. You could say we didn't get off to a very good start. Because Paul began the reading and said, we were dead. Uh, That's not a very exciting place to start. But God says, you started as dead men and women. We didn't come together as uh, massive entrepreneurial whiz kids who said, let's start something or go around the world. The Bible's assessment of us is we were dead in trespasses and sins. And that's really why I guess I'm a reformed believer, why I believe the gospel tells me that it is of God that I'm saved. We were dead. Dead people don't have a lot of choice. Dead people don't have a lot of ideas. They don't search after God. They're not thirsty for God. They don't have longings for God. Dead people don't contribute a great deal. Dead people don't bring anything to the table. Dead people need God to take action. And in this passage, we saw, but God But God interrupted, God spoke, God moved, God acted. And so this death that we were living in, it describes in some detail, goes through three uh, perspectives. It says that we were living according to the course of this world, the prevailing culture, dictated the way we evaluated things. We took our guide from those around us. We let the world shape our thinking. That was where we came from. As Eugene Peterson says in the message, you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. The world dictated the shape of our thinking. And this passing age, the almost forgetfulness that this, when the Bible speaks about this age or this world, there's a sense of it being just a short-term thing. And yet those around live as though it was everything. And, And Paul's saying, no, no, that used to captivate you. You were just bound by the world, by the prince of the power of the air. Yes, the devil, 
dark principalities and powers. We were under the dominion of satanic power. We didn't obviously look like that often, but sometimes aware of another power, another force that overtakes the children of disobedience, people who are inclined to disobedience towards God, Gentiles and Jews. God created in Christ a new creation. And we're part of that. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's breathtaking. We are new people, radically, radically changed by the gospel of God. We are a new creation. And we are his workmanship. So we've just quickly rushed through those 10 verses, picking up a few phrases. We're his workmanship. The Greek word is poema, from which we get our word poem. The Jerusalem Bible translates it, we are his work of art. Again, you could take it as the individual. God is changing you, working on you, shaping you. From the beginning, he makes you sanctified once and for all. But he actually also goes on changing your character, putting you through sometimes all sorts of difficulties, setbacks, delays, heartaches, heartbreaks. I was worshipping God a couple of weeks ago, just thanking him for breaking my heart when I was 20. Really thanking him. He did a devastating work on my heart. And I was just saying, thank you, Jesus. I know you did stuff in me that changed me completely. And it needed a heartbreak to get through this arrogant, selfish person so he could start something completely new. He takes us through all sorts of things because he's got ambition for you. You're his work of art. He wants to work on you. He wants to be able to trust you with things. He wants to be able to build things on you and know that you won't pull back or build off to an angle because somehow he dealt with you. He puts you through things. He makes you holy as a gift and then he changes you and makes you, makes you in real life into his work of art. One of our pastors in the States, Ian Ashby, his wife is an artist and she was doing it somewhat privately for her own kind of entertainment really but she built up a studio and a while ago she just began to put her work on display and to her amazement people really loved it and her work is beginning to attract serious attention and when we were together in the states at our leaders event last year or no earlier this year just a few months ago earlier this year Ian was leading a prayer time and, and he gave a most extraordinary prophecy. And I wrote to him last week and I said, can I, can I have that uh, prophecy? I just, it stirred me at the time very strongly. But I thought I'd like it actually in word. And let me just read to you what he wrote. He said, my wife, Emma, is an artist. She has her own studio, just started exhibiting and displaying her work in galleries. The response to her work has been quite amazing. It's different to anything else, very textual, Intense colors and layers. People are drawn to it. One woman said it created an atmosphere that attracted her. And then he prophesied. And all of us who were together there just felt so gripped by the prophecy that he brought. He said, I felt God wants to say to us as a family of churches, this is how it will be with you. You are my workmanship. My work of art. You are surprisingly different from what people are used to seeing. 
For I've worked into you intense colors of grace, different textures of diversity and layers of relationship. I want you to know that I have put my heart into this work. There's an atmosphere to you that is tangible to others that will draw people in. But don't try and copy other works. Don't look at what you perceive to be successful and what you think people like, the techniques employed by others. For they just produce uniformity that people will grow tired of. What I'm creating with you is spirit-breathed, my workmanship, my delight, and the result is infectious. It will attract. So learn from techniques, experiment, apply helpful principles, but don't copy another work. Be who you are, for I have uniquely created you to be. For it's different from other works, and you're going to be surprised by the response. For though you've been hidden away, as I've worked on you layer by layer, so now it's time to be brought out, to be made public. I'm going to put you on display. You'll become very visible, and many will be drawn by your atmosphere and captivated by your beauty. Now, the word is, you are my workmanship. And as I say, that could be taken on board by a, lo- a local church, the Ephesian church. It could be taken on board by the individual or the church at large. But I don't see any reason why a people who have been providentially interwoven in God's purpose and plan, in the way that God has with us, why we couldn't take such a verse to ourselves. And so I really feel very happy with this prophetic utterance. I really believe it with all my heart. I believe it. We are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful place to be. In him who keeps on providing grace and mercy and the gift of righteousness and guidance and shepherding and everything that Jesus gives. We are part of the workmanship of God. Something he has brought to birth. Layers of relationship. That phrase really stirred me. Colors of grace. God is creating something for his delight. We have benefited massively over the years from people coming in amongst us with tremendous contribution. Yes, we do learn. We keep on being helped and developed by those things. And God has used them to change and shape and develop things in us. But here it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Many of you will know the verse well. For good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And so we who used to be walking in blindness and death and sin, now we walk in these works that he prepared beforehand. Now it's that certainty of a sovereign God that gives you superb courage. It's one of the reasons I'm so glad that we've got a training track on Calvin's phenomenal contribution to the development of church planting right across Europe. Hundreds and hundreds of churches were planted across Europe with that sense we are God's workmanship. God has called us. God has taken hold of us. We have a sovereign God behind us. Swept across Europe, up into Scotland, John Knox. I mean, the certainty of people who know God's called them is a tremendous blessing. But works foreordained that we should walk in them. 
as I was thinking on that and pondering that from a New Frontiers perspective, I thought, what are the works God prepared before for us to walk in? Well, it's not difficult, really, when we remember some of the words God has given us over the years that have said quite explicitly what God's raised us up for. Right from the very beginning, when God spoke to us through John Groves, and if you're our guest, forgive my being kind of a bit in-house this year. You're most, most welcome. I hope there's not enough common stuff here for us all to enjoy. But I want to speak to the family, particularly uh, this year. We had a prophetic word. And John Groves said, I see a herd of elephants and they're charging and there's jungle terrain ahead and there's no road. But they just run and they run through it and make a road where there is no road. Others will follow and together you can accomplish more than you ever could alone. Now that was so formative to us decades ago when a handful of pastors were beginning to get filled with the Spirit and enjoy a bit of fellowship. And I think maybe we had started Downs Bible Week, which gathered a couple of thousand people. But God spoke to us prophetically. Works prepared beforehand. Well, in that prophecy, you've got works prepared beforehand. What are they? Well, first of all, there's no road. You're going to make a road where there is no road. It's quite hard now, looking back, and when you see the videos and gather in from all over the world, people who love one another, you see people embracing from Mexico to Russia to here to there, and, and you think, wow, what a blessing God has granted these decades. But when we started, there was no road. No one was doing this stuff. No one was making the sort of steps we were making, saying, we are on a church planting mission. People didn't hardly use that language. You stayed at home or sent someone off to be a missionary. You didn't plant churches. You didn't go together. You didn't say, let's do this thing together. You didn't say, let's have a Bible week that gets bigger and bigger. Let's get something like Stonely. Let's have clout in this nation, which is saying, well, okay, charismatic may be all right, but it's private. And if you want your little prayer language, that's up to you. Don't mess with church. And we said, no, we're coming through. We're coming through because God's about a great thing. We're not just going to have a little private aspect to our Christianity. God said, together, you can make a road where there is no road. And praise God, we are doing it and have been doing it. We're making road where there was, there was no road. It's almost impossible for me now to think back to what church life was like when I first got filled with the Spirit and thought, wow, the demands of this are phenomenal. We've got to change church completely. It was like, how dare you? You arrogant. What are you, what are you doing? And I mean, it was tough. But we can't just go at home and speak in tongues. We've got to see church life radically changed. And we could do it together. We could say, let's, let's, let's pool our resources. Let's get, let's get in this together. So together, yes, we had great, great steps. We were able to train leaders together. We were able to send teams overseas together. We were able to plant churches together. Unable to run stonely together. We're able now to run New Day together with thousands of your children and a generation that's bumping up behind us saying, we want to go to the nations. 
who get fired up. There'll be 6,000 plus with, uh, together in a few weeks' time. Boy, that represents a road that did not exist before. There was nothing like that. Together, we've been able to accomplish what we couldn't before. Works foreordained of God that you should walk in them. We've been walking in them. Doing together what we could never do alone. We've raised finance together to resource this, to send, as we've just done recently to Zimbabwe, last year to Kenya, where there's been terrible need. Whereas a single church, you think, well, that's terrible, how sad. But as a group, from some 14 different nations, we raised half a million to send to Zim. That's wonderful. We can do together what we couldn't do apart. There have been all sorts of ways in which that's been working out. Now we're sending people out. God told us we would do these things. We would send arrows. God said as we planted churches back through the UK, arrows would go out. Now we're into Nagoya. Didn't it make your heart thrill when we heard those big cities, Japan? I thought, Tom and Julia are there. And you heard Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, massive cities. I thought, we're there, we're there, we're just going to be there. Who is? Well, we are. Who are you? Well, we're just nobodies, but God bound us together in his work of art and made us promises that if we would push back into the UK, plant more churches, get more resources, raise more finance, excite more young people, we would go, they would go. And they're still going. Works foreordained of God. Workmen, we're his work of art. There are things he promised we would do, and they're happening. He told us we would gather old bricks who would join our new wall. The imagery was, as someone saw in prophetic vision, a wall that was crumbling, sad, and an exciting new wall going up. But they saw piles of new bricks, and it was almost like they needed the occasional old brick with wisdom, ability to gather those young bricks around them. And God said to us, you will gather in old bricks. That's happened. I believe it's going to happen much more. I've had the joy and privilege of meeting some wonderful, godly men over these last few years. But so often in sad, lonely, independent works. If only they could be in a galvanized world mission movement with all their wisdom, their biblical knowledge, their pastoral skills. I believe we've got to keep praying for that to happen more and more and more. Works foreordained of God. He told us we would walk in them. And then finally, and perhaps most excitingly, he said to us we would change the expression of Christianity around the world. Somebody once heard us say that and said, why? Why does it need to be changed? Change the expression. of What does it mean, change the expression? Well, here's a few. I believe change from legalistic to grace-shaped. It's so sad. Only God knows the percentage of churches, nations, whose churches are riddled with legalism. How the Apostle Paul would have fought and fought and fought to liberate them to the gospel of grace. 
Much that's called Christianity is hidebound in, in heaviness and guilt and condemnation. And there's no joy. Driven. Had the privilege of speaking at quite a big conference recently and preached grace four sessions. And there was a real buzz in the conference. And one lady came to me. She said, I've been on the staff here for seven years. I didn't realize I'm a legalist. I want to change. It's going to be my privilege to go to Japan next February. And they're translating God's lavish grace into Japanese to go right across a national pastor's conference. You think, yes, Lord, to change the expression of Christianity. Yes, from legalism to the freedom that grace provides, the wonderful liberty of stepping out of rules and regulations religion. From independence to interdependence. Churches that just are, they would say autonomous, but they're independent, they just live for themselves. Now we've got to change the expression of Christianity. It was never the biblical purpose. It was never apostolic concept that a church would be planted and have nothing to do with world mission. We'll be seeing more of that as the week goes on. Churches plan to get caught up. We've got to change that. We've got churches to see they're part of a world mission. From being closed in to looking out. From being self-centered to being sacrificial. From being individualistic to becoming corporate. From being democratic to honoring anointing and gifted leadership. How many good churches are totally ensnared by democracy? Totally ensnared. That's got to change. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for works that we're to walk in. We're to keep on either planting new churches or help people make the radical changes that need to be made so that the life of God can flood through those churches. From being cessationist to becoming charismatic. From being old wineskin to new wineskin. Changing the expression of Christianity. See God do a new thing. It's so wonderful when a church that is alive in the spirit gets visibility. So great that our friends from Peterborough were on television recently. And just the disc jockey, many of you will have, I know, looked at the website and seen that. And the guy's saying, that's amazing, that's amazing. And he's just looking at a great church. It's full of life and baptisms and people saying amen, just like this. And they don't know it's there. The world hardly knows. So we've got to keep on planting more and more churches. Help churches that are a bit frightened and nervous to say, no, this is okay. Let's change. God's made us an instrument for change globally. Internationally. Not just in the UK. So yes, from cessationist to charismatic, which brings me to my, I guess, second major section here from Ephesians. I didn't read the verse I want to read now, Ephesians chapter 1, where he says in verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. So we want to be theologically, truly biblical, truly biblical. 
but we also want to know the explosive power of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says that having believed, you were sealed. What does that mean? What does it mean, sealed? Well, it's interesting to study that. A seal is something that uh, is stamped in wax, if you like. When we think of a seal, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's a stamp of authenticity, authority, ownership, security. It's something that you know about. It's something visible. It's something that adds authority, that adds authenticity. Interestingly, the English Standard Version Study Bible says this, the Holy Spirit certifies the authenticity of their acceptance by God as being genuine. They bear the royal seal. Sealed with the Spirit, they bear the royal seal. That's the way the ESV comments on it. And then cross-references Acts 10, verses 44 and 47, when Peter goes to Cornelius' house and preaches to these Gentiles, he himself having to overcome all his Jewishness, his Jewish reluctance to go to a Gentile home. And as he's preaching, you remember the story? You remember, don't you, that Peter has a vision and he sees the sheets coming down from heaven. He's told, kill and eat. He says, oh, I don't do that. I'm, a, I'm Jewish. I don't eat those things. And, and God says, what I call clean, don't you call unclean. And so then you get the knock on the door. Cornelius's messengers come to him. Now come to this Gentile home. And Peter... And all his Jewishness is going, I've got to go to a Gentile home. That's a weird thing to do. I feel very nervous about this. It's against what I would regard as appropriate. To honor God is not to mingle with the Gentiles. And then he begins to talk about Jesus. Because Cornelius said, an angel appeared to us and told us to send for you. So he starts telling the gospel. And what happens? The spirit falls upon them. And Peter says, Oh, my word. God has given the same gift to them as he did to us. You better get baptized now. And listen, the whole reason Peter knows that these Gentiles are now authentic people of God is the Spirit came upon them as a seal, as a proof, as a demonstration. You need to know, Peter, this is authentic. The coming of the Spirit is authentic seal. And we must get hold of that because in our day, so many people will teach that the baptism, which is the same thing as the seal, of the Spirit is non-experiential. You just become a Christian, you don't necessarily feel anything. And that is being baptized with the Spirit. But the Bible says that when the Spirit came upon them, for Peter... That was proof God is working on the Gentiles. It wasn't that they didn't feel anything. It wasn't that there was nothing to see. A seal can be seen. It's evidence. It authenticates. The coming of the Spirit authenticates. It gives another dimension. In fact, it's interesting that when you get to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, when again they're discussing who, what do you have to do with people who become uh, Christian? Should they be uh, circumcised and all the rest of it? And Peter says, well, don't forget, 
I went to the Gentiles, I went to Cornelius' house, and he says, in account, giving his account of what happened in Cornelius' house, he says in Acts 15, he cleansed their heart by faith. He cleansed their heart by faith. That's kind of, oh, I'm saved. Oh, wonderful. May shed a little tear, but it's not terribly dramatic. And then he says this, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So the new birth cleanses the heart through faith, but the seal of the Spirit is showing God is here. They are authentic. They are the real thing. The coming upon of the Spirit is huge. It's vital. It's not something we should dismiss or miss the point. It's the argument point that makes the Gentiles acceptable. The seal. It says even of Jesus in John six twenty seven, on him God the Father has set his seal. God set his seal on him. What is that what's that referring to? Well Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones and C. K. Barrett, incidentally, says John the Baptist was told, the one you see the Holy Spirit come upon. He's the one. And when John saw the Spirit come upon him, he said, he's the one. He sealed him. It's visible. It's evident. Whom I seal. And so the coming of the Spirit, dear friends, is huge. Sometimes people say, well, it happens gradually. You become a Christian, then you gradually get filled with the Spirit. Or sometimes people say, well, it's when you've lived a Christian life for a long time, you get mature, then Paul says... Did you receive the Spirit? They said, no. Acts 19. He says, what were you baptized into then? Well, John's baptism. Oh, I see. You're disciples of John the Baptist. I thought you were disciples of Jesus. Oh, okay. So he then tells them all about Jesus, it says. Then he baptized them. Then, it says, you can imagine the water still dripping off them. When he lays hands on them, and the Spirit fell on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. It's plain biblical truth. It's so important. The Gospels promise the Spirit is coming. The Epistles write as though the Spirit has come. The book of Acts tell us how it happened. And it's no good saying, well, we don't take it from the book of Acts. That's narrative because you get doctrine from narrative. The Bible says so. All scripture is given by inspiration from God and is profitable for doctrine. 1 Corinthians 10, all these things happened to them as an example and were written down for our instruction. What's our instruction? Narrative, stories, how it unfolded. That's instructive. It's written to guide us. You don't say, oh, book of Acts is just stories. That's how it happened. And so for us, we must, we must rediscover the splurge of the Spirit's coming. We will never understand how the New Testament church grew without knowing the dynamic of the presence of the Spirit. It's vital. It's absolutely vital. Paul says in Galatians 3, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Well, modern commentator would say, well, we don't know. We never felt anything anyway. <laughs> Makes Paul's question utter folly. He expects people to know what he's talking about. In Acts 19, when he asked them, have you received? They said, we don't know. After he'd, after he'd prayed for them, he said, have you received now? I don't think they said, well, I think we're moving into that. I think they said, yeah, we've received. <laughs> Maybe you've not received. So thrilling to mingle leadership and mobilize and many here tonight. Maybe you've not yet received. You could receive tonight. Wouldn't it be great? We had the word, Jesus shouting out, anyone's thirsty. You thirsty? Doesn't say anyone holy. Doesn't say anyone special, anyone very mature now. If, if what it says is anybody thirsty. I was so thrilled to be sent a testimony recently. I'll read it to you. It's a guy in the States. And uh, this testimony was sent to me. It was, it's just exciting. I sat in a theological classroom for a total of eight years pursuing my undergrad in biblical studies, then my Master of Divinity in hermeneutics and exegesis. I was unsettled in my final convictions regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Did it accompany salvation? Was it an experience that came after? Then I listened to a message by Terry Virgo last week. While listening, I was giving a hearty amen in my heart towards his theology, though struggling a bit with one or two features. <laughs> Can't imagine what they would be, but... So, so I pray, if this baptism of the Spirit is biblical, if it's for me and something that comes through the laying on of hands, that you, Lord, would be willing to make an exception in my case and lay hands on me digitally. <laughs> I even imagined the Lord laying his own hands on me while Terry was praying at the end of the talk. I retired to bed laid there for about 10 minutes praying about the next morning's sermon and suddenly without any warning I experienced for the first time in my life a genuine baptism of the Holy Spirit I was filled so fast with such an amazing and intimate joy and happiness I began shouting and laughing I could hardly contain myself so much so that I had to grab a pillow cover my face with it because I didn't want to wake my dear wife. I, I laughed, I cried, I was overjoyed, and then without a warning, a flood of prophetic activity filled my mind, such as I've never experienced before. And then, as if all this was not strange and mysterious enough, I noticed my description of the things I was seeing was not in English. <laughs> he says in his... And he's thinking, wow, holy cow, I'm speaking in tongues. <laughs> I got up the next morning, I worshipped with more intimacy than I ever had, I preached more passionately than I believe I ever have, and people definitely noticed. Thank God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I can't wait to see what's next. The coming upon of the Spirit, the seal or baptism, we cannot say it is non-experiential, it is utter foolishness. Douglas Moo says, the Spirit in our heart crying, Abba, Father. In his commentary on Romans 8, he says, it's a truth deeply felt 
and intensely experienced. Intensely experienced, not non-experiential. It's intense. He said, it says shouting out, crying out. Lloyd-Jones makes the same point. This word that Paul uses, the spirit in our heart, crying out. He says it's a very extravagant kind of word. It's not something, as Moose says, that's just a reflection on a few uh, thoughts. It is something impulsive. It just cries out. Like this guy experienced. And remember this. It's not, Paul says, did you receive by works of the law? Or in other words, did you work up some merit? Or by hearing with faith? I want to invite you in a moment. If you've never received the baptism of the Spirit, I want to invite you. Come and drink. Come and receive. But let me just say this to you before we go there. Paul says, did you receive through works of the law? In other words, gaining merit by being a good person or by hearing with faith. You just have to hear with faith. That's the whole point. It's not something you get from merit. It's a gift. It happens to these people so early in their Christian lives. It is a gift. You hear with faith. You hear the promises. The promise is for everyone that the Lord our God shall call. It's not for special people. I remember what happened once in a meeting. I was preaching and a girl came forward, a student. She got saved. And she said to me, as she, she received Christ, I had the joy and privilege of counseling her. And the people are going. We were hiring a hall at that time. And uh, she said, well, we'll have to go. And I said, she said, oh, there's more, isn't there? I can, there's power in this place. And I said, yeah, there is more, actually. She said, can I know that? And I said, yes. You can come to my home next weekend. Come next weekend, and I'll tell you about receiving the power of the Spirit. And she said, I'd love to. So we arranged she'd come the next Saturday. So the next Saturday, she came to my home, and her name was Celia. I remember it very well. She brought a girl with her who was her roommate at college. And her roommate said, Celia is so changed in being a Christian. Can I become a Christian? So I said, yeah, I'd love that. She said, well, how do you? So I led this second girl to Christ. Then Celia said, but don't forget what I've come from. I've come to receive the baptism. I said, right, okay. So we opened the scriptures and just showed the promises. So she said, right, well, can I receive now? Yes, of course. And then the other girl who'd been saved 20 minutes by and I said, can I have that as well? <laughs> well, if you look at Acts 19, it says, Paul baptized them. When they came out of the water, he put his hands on them. They were filled with the Spirit. Of course you can have it. The only people who were ever told to tarry and wait were the ones that were asking, or at least Jesus said to them, if you're thirsty, come and receive. If you'd come through the crowd and said, yes, I'm thirsty, he'd have said, not yet. What, because I'm not worthy. Nothing to do with you. I'm not yet glorified. It's not whether you're worthy, it's whether I'm glorified. The Spirit was not yet given because he was not yet glorified. But on the day of Pentecost, Peter virtually preached on that sermon. He said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised up, whereof we are witnesses. And he, being exalted at the right hand of the Father, glorified, has shed forth this, which you can see and hear. In other words, it's now available. And after that day, no one was ever told to wait. 
When Philip went down to Samaria and saw people saved, the apostles came down and said, oh, you better find an upper room. You know, there's more. You better go and wait somewhere. No, no, they just laid hands on them. When Ananias came to Paul, saved three days. He didn't say, oh, you're going to be an apostle. You better find an upper room somewhere. And tarry. No, no. They, it's Ananias and nobody, we don't know who he was, laid hands on Paul and he was filled with the Spirit. No one was ever told to wait. Directly God saw that Cornelius' heart was cleansed through faith. The Spirit fell. The Holy Spirit believes in justification by faith. He owns, he seals. He seals people who are justified by faith. He puts his seal upon them. So when this girl said, can I? I said, yes, of course. So I prayed for Celia, who'd been saved one week. And I prayed for her friend, whose name was Saraji. And she'd been saved 20 minutes. I just laid hands on them, prayed for the Spirit. The Spirit came both on both of them. They both started singing in tongues. They went on their way very happy. <laughs> the, the promise is for you. The promise is for everyone that the Lord our God shall call just to say one more thing, just to mention about, we've seen speaking in tongues often comes up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray also with the understanding. In other words, these two things are different. Praying with the Spirit is to pray without the understanding. To pray with tongues is like turning on a radio that's speaking a foreign language. You don't understand it. It's a vehicle of worship you don't understand. It's like the fulfillment of Wesley's desire. Over a thousand tongues. Okay, here's one. I can bypass all this limitation. Lord, I'd love to tell you, but I don't know how to express it. But I don't know what I'm saying. That's right. Paul says, if I pray with the Spirit... My mind is unfruitful, but I'll do it. I'll do it more than all of you, he says. Paul spoke in tongues more than all the Corinthians. But he said, I will pray with the understanding as well, but I often pray with the Spirit. So notice then, you don't understand it. So it may be this evening, you receive the Spirit, you begin to speak in tongues, I don't understand. That's what it says in the Bible. And notice too, Paul says, I will. I will pray with the Spirit. He doesn't say, maybe God will. God doesn't speak in tongues. You do it. I will pray with the Spirit. I will do it. I will do it. When you pray in tongues, you're doing something you've never done before, but you're using apparatus you've used before. You're using your lungs, your vocal cords, your tongue, teeth, lips. You know how to speak. It's just that speaking in tongues is new. And so you, I will do it, Paul says. When you receive the Spirit, you speak with tongues. I will do it. You don't wait for God to do it. God doesn't speak in tongues. Sometimes you can pray for someone and you say, well, I'm waiting. What are we waiting for? It's a bit like Peter being in the boat. 
And Jesus is walking on the water. And, and, and he calls out to Jesus. Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. And Peter sits there and thinks, any minute now. Is that it? No, no, that wasn't it. No, hold on. Oh, no, no, that's not it. No, no, he doesn't. He starts walking off the boat. He walked to the edge of the boat and then, well, here goes. He, he used his walking apparatus in another realm. When you speak in tongues, you use your speaking apparatus in another realm. You just begin to do it. And the Spirit flows in and through us. So on this first night, I want us to, where have we come from? We've come from word and spirit. Reformed and charismatic. Both essential. Truth that grips us. Truth that makes us feel God is for us, with us. He's removed our guilt and shame. We're not legalists. We're living in grace. Truth that has liberated us. But also sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's the Father's promise. He will give the Spirit to those who ask. He made a promise. Let's go from this first night absolutely fulfilling what God has for us. I do believe that what PJ did here tonight was very prophetic. I'm so glad he wasn't put off by a mic that didn't work. God shouted out and said, if anybody's thirsty, come to me and drink. Let's stand, please. Good if the musicians could come up, but it would be good also for us all to just draw near to God. Father, I do pray right now that you will overcome any hindrance in us and you'll find in us such an eager longing to meet with you. There are many people here who would love the joy of laying hands on people tonight. And I do believe there are many here tonight who would love to know that they're sealed with the Spirit. If you just know, I, I want this so much. This is for me. I want it. If you know that's true of you, I want to invite you right now, please. Let's not wait to sing. Let's come. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, please come right now from wherever you are. Drop in the gallery, wherever you're sitting. If you've not been filled with the Spirit, just come.